Welcome once again inside the Wheelhouse Podcast. It is episode number 58. It's been too long since we've been here on Root Sports. Really, we haven't had that many episodes here on TV, so if you are new to the podcast, let's explain how it works one more time. We do a long podcast with Mariners General Manager Jerry Depoto. It's about 40 to 45 minutes long on average per episode. We can only put 20-some minutes or so here on Root Sports, so if you want the entire episode, find it wherever you find your podcasts on iTunes, on Stitcher, or wherever that might be. So with that in mind, Jerry, uh, hey, this has been a really good run of baseball for your ball club. We are recording this on Monday in advance of the Yankees series. Four consecutive series wins for the Mariners. Longer than this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been great. You know, it's, it's fun to see the guys battling. The dog days are are named the dog days for a reason. This is that time of year where the, where the players just get a little run down, especially the everyday guys who've been asked to do a lot. We've introduced a lot of young players to the to the environment. We've given a lot of players opportunity, uh, and they're taking advantage of it. And it's been really fun to see over these last two weeks or so. We've got a lot to talk about, both with what's going on right now at the major league level and also on the minor league level down on the farm. I'm Aaron Goldsmith, Mariners broadcaster, joined as always by Colin O'Keefe, our maestro who runs things so well for us. First of all, Jerry, let's talk about some guys who have uh, maybe not uh, had the service time to be veterans, maybe have more the age that you would think would be a veteran player. But let's start with Austin Nola. I mean, this is a 30-something rookie who has come onto the scenes this year, and we kept thinking that it would regress at some point. And really, for the most part, it hasn't, and he's played a wide variety of defensive positions. What have you made of Nola as this summer just continues for him? I love the fact that his player's weekend nickname was Nola. Uh, no, Austin's done a terrific job for us. Had a really good start for us at the at Tacoma to start the season and was doing it in believable ways, hitting the ball hard, making good swing decisions. We knew coming in that defense was going to be a calling card. He did a lot of catching while at Tacoma, and since he's been here in Seattle, he's played first plate, first base, second base. He's caught just a little and given us incredible depth and versatility. And he's worked his way into being roughly our three-hole hitter for most of the last month or so, and, and he's doing a great job of it. He's, he gives us a good at-bat, and he does the right things. He has great baseball instincts. It's been incredible to watch, and same story for Tom Murphy. I mean, I, it's funny because as we see what Murphy has done over the course of the season, he and Omar Narvaez, we talk about it all the time on the year. I mean, they are combining to put together the best offensive season by any Mariners catchers tandem in club history. When David Freitas was let go, there was like a like this outcry among a lot of Mariners fans that the Mariners backup catcher who had become a little bit of a fan favorite was uh, no more. And here comes Tom Murphy, a guy that we knew almost nothing about, who did not have much of a track record, who was out of options. And he has been incredible to watch, especially on this last road trip for the ball club. You know, Murph, really since day one, has been such a pleasant addition for us. And we identified him going into the, the season as somebody of a, something of a target. And, you know, he was a guy that we asked the Rockies about in a trade during the December winter meetings. We weren't able to push it across. Uh, ultimately, Murph was moved in spring training. Obviously, we were not the, the benefactor. And San Francisco picked him up. They had some catching depth along the way. And as it works out, just prior to opening day, what would have been opening day, the domestic version of opening day since we went to Japan? You know, they offered Tom Murphy our way and, and we were able to pick him up in a small deal. And it wound up being a really big deal for us because not only has Murph joined Omar to give us that that quality offensive production from catcher, which is really hard to get in this league, but his ability to, to communicate with the pitching staff, to call a game, receive and, and control a running game 
is it's been remarkable and we love what he's doing with our young pitchers particularly but what he's doing in creating a, a, a form of communication between our staff our analysts our advanced scouts and our and our pitchers so I'm curious your thoughts on him defensively I think the the offensive numbers are pretty self-evident right it doesn't take much of a scout to figure that out I was tooling around a little bit on Baseball Savant. They've got some interesting pitching framing data on there. This is coming straight from Major League Baseball. But you can get pitch framing numbers from a variety of sources. A lot of times they can be kind of clunky and you don't exactly know what is right, what isn't, and what's kind of in between. But they have him as being, at the time that I last looked, the best in baseball at framing the knee-high pitch. And this is a real strength of him. According to StatCast and Baseball Savant, is this similar numbers to what you guys have internally? Similar. We think Tom is in a, among the top tier in, in framing that low pitch, stealing the strike, so to speak, from the bottom of the zone. And overall, we think he's kind of surfaced as one of the top 20 or so defensive catchers in the league. And with the kind of power he brings to the table and the makeup and the type of leadership skills that I just mentioned, that's a really positive addition to the club. And it's gone a long way toward helping Omar. You know, Omar in many ways came into this season as a built-out offensive player who is still trying to learn the, the nuances of receiving pitches, calling a game, working with a staff. And I think Murph has done a great job of pairing with Omar, and they've allowed each other to grow and develop. It's, it's a great thing for us because they're both under club control for minimally another three years for Omar and four for Murph. League-wide arm wrestling competition. Has to be a winner. Murphy, like, long shot win. I mean, there's no doubt, right? This is happening. I think he would just pull the arm out of the socket <laughs> of the, the, the opponent. <laughs> I mean, I truly, and we've talked about this on air from time to time, I have never seen a player in the hotel gym more than Tom Murphy. I mean, this is like all the time. He's a workout fanatic and a dietary fanatic also. There's a, it goes a long way to keep yourself in shape like that. You know, Murph, there's the, I guess, baseball, uh, Major League Baseball notoriety has eluded him until this year. But this is a guy who was a third round draft pick, spent some time as a top 100 prospect in the minor leagues, was roughly a superstar in AAA for the previous three years. And just never really got that opportunity in the big leagues. And when he got there, he was prepared. And, and he hasn't changed a thing about what he does. It's personality-wise, the way he eats, the way he takes care of himself, the way he gets after it in the gym. It's, it is who he is, and, and that defines him. And my, I, I suspect that years from now, when his career draws to a close, and my guess is he will be able to play a little bit longer than most because of how he takes care of his body, that nothing will have ever changed, that Tom Murphy is just Tom Murphy. <laughs> it's been tough to see what happened to Kyle Seager last year. Obviously, it was uh, his least productive season in the big leagues, and there was so much hope for Kyle based on his offseason regiment routine, and now he got into such immaculate shape. And then the injury in spring training got off to a slow start once he came back, which I think was probably fair to expect in, in a lot of regards. And now, Jerry, we are seeing Kyle Seeger put together probably, when it's all said and done, the best month of his career. I mean, going into the Sunday series, the Sunday final game against the Blue Jays, he had an OPS of over 1,200 for August with eight home runs. And this has been beyond anybody's wildest imaginations for Kyle, I'd have to think. Oh, for me, especially. There's a, Kyle came into this season. Obviously, we knew he was going to miss the first couple of months. And he came into this season at having worked so hard on his body, uh, remade his swing a little bit. 
he has, I think Kyle, to his credit, has not really tinkered as much this year. And I guess why would you tinker if it's working? And right now he is on as good a roll. I actually turned around to one of the guys that works with us who wasn't here prior to this year the other day. And I said, this is what we watched all of 2016, roughly. Uh, Kyle Seeger has been worth about two wins above replacement since the 1st of July. That's a phenomenal number. And I, I think it's Nelson Cruz and Kyle Seeger and anybody who plays for the Astros have been the best <laughs> offensive players in baseball over that time. But, you know, credit to Kyle because he, he A, really bounced back from what was a, an unfortunate injury after coming into spring training. And I know we joke around all the time about the guy that comes into spring training in the best shape of his life. Kyle really did. Yeah. Uh, he looks fantastic. He's, he's playing with a high degree of energy. He always got the good defense from Kyle Seeger. And now we're back to seeing the offensive player that he was for the majority of his career, truly, prior to 2018. Every time Kyle Seeger talks about his success, especially the su success that he's had recently in the month of August, he always mentions Tim Laker. I mean, every time, the rapport that he and Lake have developed this season uh, seems to be a major reason for this renaissance of Kyle Seager. Is this what you're seeing also? Yeah, it's it's nice when you see a player pair well with a coach. And, and I will say this about Lake, that it, first of all, dating back to when we were off in Japan and the early start to our season, it, he has done a phenomenal job of acclimating himself to our system very quickly. And the, the players have all gravitated toward him. He, he has credibility having played in the league. He has credibility coaching in what I would say is a very modern way. Uh, and he understands the modern swing. He's, he, and he teaches it in a way that is just different than anybody I've been around. But he remains old school in his delivery with sophisticated, more modern type uh, information. And I think it really appeals to the players. He's, uh, he keeps it simple. And I, there, I can't think of a hitter down there that doesn't appreciate Tim Laker. And, and I really appreciate the fact that day one, uh, truly the day we hired Lake, he got in a car and he drove over to the to the facility in Peoria and just sat down with our hitting group in the conference room with about 10 hitting coaches and talked for the entire afternoon. He's, he's been ready since he got here. The modern swing. How would you define that? Uh, the modern swing is let your body gather, find almost like we talk about a pitcher, let your body gather, find your own equilibrium, elevate, you know, get the ball up in the air. And what we used to consider, uh, you know, the, the need was to swing down on the ball. There's, we now know that that's not the appropriate way to swing the bat, and Lake realizes that. It's all the years of working with Craig Wallenbrock and, and Robert Von Skoyak, and uh, he's over there at the facilities. He's working with some of the modern marvels, you know, guys who, who went there and remade their swings, including some of our own. You know, he's, he's had a history working with Mitch Hanniger, among others. And, you know, to, to have a coach who played – played the game, who can speak it simply, and who's teaching modern, sophisticated swing types, I think is really appealing in a, in a lot of ways, and, and we're really glad he's here. And when you look at a guy that just came through town in Bo Bichette, he's the one that stands out most to me. He's a middle infielder. He's a guy that you typically would expect, you know, in the old game, all right, slap the ball, spray it around. You know, if he came to camp in 1987 with a huge leg kick trying to elevate it, somebody would have said, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Don't do that. That's ridiculous. But in today's game, you load up, get ready, and swing from your behind and try to hit it over the fence. And it's worked for him, obviously. It's it's what first. I mean, Bo is going to be a superstar. He, I mean, he looked as good as any young player that's come through here. 
there, I happen to have played with his dad, and and I went to watch Bo and and Bo's uh, older brother Danny, who was a first round pick with the Yankees a couple of years back. And, you know, and both of them, they swing really hard. And I said to Dante, as we were watching him, I said, man, they swing hard. And Dante said, how else do you hit? So just, <laughs> you know, let it rip. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's I, I think those types, th- that type of mentality is so prevalent in today's game and with today's player. But if you just turn back the clock as little as five or six years ago, it was taboo to even talk like that. To focus a little bit on the pitching side, this has been an eventful year. In some ways good, in some ways not good for Yusei Kikuchi, right? He signs the big deal. A lot of expectations come with it. Makes his debut in his home country in the Tokyo Dome. Ichiro's final game. Comes stateside. Unfortunately, suffers the loss of his father almost immediately. Then celebrates the birth of his son shortly thereafter. All the while, really struggling at times to get results at the highest level of competition that he's ever faced. We saw what would appear to be a turning point for him in Toronto, complete game shutout, a brilliant masterpiece against the Blue Jays. What was it that worked so well for you, say, in that start that you and Scott Service are hoping to see him use to continue to turn the corner? I think that he didn't overthink it is the simplest answer. It's the, the, this game, when you're playing 162-game seasons and, and you go through the grind, the, the easiest thing to do as a player is to think too much. And, you know, I think you say as a natural, he thinks about it. He, he considers all the different ways he can get better. He's always looking to find that added edge or turn the dial that's going to help him achieve something, even when he's finding success. He was dominant against the Blue Jays. And we saw all the weapons, the overpowering stuff. We saw higher fastball velocity, better pitch command, consistency with his breaking balls. And we, see, we saw this periodically. You know, his last start against the Yankees in New York, his start against the, the Indians in Cleveland was awesome. We, but we've seen it in fits and starts. And, you know, what we saw in Toronto, he, he, he allowed himself to just – this is going to sound a little bit corny to, to quote Tom McNamara. <laughs> but it, he allowed himself to feel like the art of his own delivery and just be Yusei Kukuchi instead of trying to become something. Uh, and and we saw all the weapons and they worked and he hung with it and he didn't try to change anything mid drift he just did what was working and and I hope we see that when he runs back out to the mound again tomorrow. Okay, I've got something. I got two things actually on you say and O'Keefe. I don't know if you're aware of this either. These two th- one is more incredible than the other, but both I find almost unbelievable. First of all, Kikuchi's BFF, Daniel Vogelback. I mean, why would that? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, is this not one of baseball's oddest pairings, Vogelback and Kikuchi? Like, Vogelback is helping you say learn English. Which is terrifying. (laughs) Vogelback is actually one of our. This reminds me of a quick little sidestep. A former teammate of mine in Colorado, Vinny Castilla, uh, who hails from Oaxaca, Mexico, uh, was taught English by Charlie Hayes, who. uh, Charlie, to to be fair, Charlie's English was fair, and uh, he he was he taught Vinny Castilla English. Therefore, as a as a reference point, in almost every sentence, Vinny started it out by saying "cuz," <laughs> uh, which is awesome, uh, awesome. Uh, Vogie, you know, Vogie's actually. I will say this: his if I had to pick somebody down there to go and express a thought, uh, uh, just a clear thought that expressed some opinion in a smart way. 
Bogey might be the guy that you'd ask. He's 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 a bright guy. He puts words together well. And more than anything else, he loves the other 24 guys in that room. He truly does. He is like the he's like everybody's brother, so to speak. And and I'm not at all shocked that he's the one who reaches out and spends the time with you say. Okay, to to dovetail on that, and I th- I think you'll agree, but I'm curious your thoughts. Like Vogi has oftentimes the most uh, well phrased and deep thinking post game comments when something is like really at the matter to discuss. I mean, it's almost always the case. Have, have you noticed that also? He's a thoughtful guy. He's a thoughtful guy, and it's something that goes unnoticed by fans. But he is kind of a leader down in that clubhouse. One of the, one of the things that stuck in my head, though, not to the you know, diction that he uses per se. But I remember, I think Marco gave up a hit through the shift. It wasn't his last time out, but maybe the time before the time before that. And Vogie playing first made sure, and you can see from the press box or where have you, Vogie takes five steps towards the mound and goes, you know, come on, Marco, we got this. We'll pick you up, man. We got you. Like, I mean, just guessing that those are the words, but he's firing Marco up saying, hang tough. We'll pick you up. And I believe they came back and picked him up there. So he he is really good in those spots. I've I've interviewed him for a couple different things, um, and then he'll even I remember being down in the clubhouse where I think it was Crew Seeger or somebody else and Kyle had to run and go do something, and Vogie will be the first one to go. Hey, no, go ahead. I'll, I'll watch him. I'll t- I'll keep an eye on him for a second. And he's happy to do it. Shoot some hoops. Do whatever. All right. For the record, I am certain that this was the first dropping of the word diction during our, <laughs> during our podcast endeavor. It took 58 episodes. Nicely done. Okay, here's the second thing regarding Vogelback and Kikuchi, and this is truly unbelievable. So I'm, I'm walking back to the hotel in St. Pete on the recent road trip. It's a beautiful morning. There's this little park, and you're familiar with it, between the Vinoy Hotel and kind of the rest of town. And you kind of walk through this little park to get almost anywhere. So I'm walking back to the hotel, and on this park bench all by himself is Yusei Kikuchi, just enjoying a cup of coffee. And so, some humidity. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so I see Yusei, and I go over and I say hello, and I sit down next to him, and we start talking. And uh, I I hadn't really learned much about his son. I didn't know much besides the obvious things. And so I asked him, how's your wife doing, and how's baby doing, and you're gone a lot, the normal conversation. And then I bring up Vogelback. And he tells me his son's name. And he says, my son's name is Leo, L-E-O. I was like, oh, Leo, okay, great name. And he says, yeah, Leo Daniel Kikuchi. I said, now, what? Daniel? Yes, Daniel, Daniel. So, like Daniel Vogelback? He's like, yes, named him after Daniel Vogelback. <laughs> what? What? I'm like, no, wait, 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 wait. And to, as you know this, I mean... We saw it in the introductory press conference for you, say, when he spoke English all on his own. I mean, it's remarkable. Also a very thoughtful guy. Yeah, it is remarkable how much he has learned even before Vogelback entered his life uh, to speak English. And I said, now, I just want to make sure I understand this correctly, you say, and I'm speaking, like, slowly, right? I want to make sure that we are crystal clear here. Are you telling me, you say, that you named your son, his middle name is named after Daniel Vogelback? Yes. Yes, that's right. So I go to the clubhouse later that day inside the trop, and I see Daniel sitting on the clubhouse because I'm, I'm like 90% there, but I need Daniel's because Daniel obviously knows about this Confirm if, if this is true. And I'm like, Bogey, man, I, I heard something today, and I, I trust the source, and yet I still don't believe it. Can you confirm this? He goes, yeah, man, for sure. Absolutely. Why should this? Yes. I mean, the first of many. I mean, <laughs> this is a real thing. 
Kikuchi's son's middle name is after Daniel Vogelback. Congra- congratulations. You you made this happen, Jerry. It's like Love American style. <laughs> we, we, we jammed them together. I mean, that is... Tell me that blows you away like it blows me away. It's, I think it's phenomenal. I, I did not know that little factoid. There's, That's stuff, uh, JD. Yeah. We're done. There, there, We're this done. is a YouTube series just waiting to happen. <laughs> <Is> it? <laughs> it has to be. It, I, and, and it can go multi-nationwide. Oh, I mean, yeah. We can throw this out there on multiple different continents. I don't, I don't know if there's a proper segue from this, but we'll pivot and we'll move on. But this is the greatest moment of the Wheelhouse podcast. It's amazing. Has it been on a broadcast yet? Uh you know, I was I so I sat on it for a day until I saw Vogie, and then I was waiting for the right time. So you know, we're breaking news here. Perfect. <laughs> for you, I'll tweet it right for, now. Yeah, for you. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's talk about some some young guys. One of the young guys who has been called up, and we've already seen get his first big league knock. Eighty grade hair, like it breaks the scale. Actually, I mean Jake Fraley, it's glorious. Uh, and it's everywhere. It is it everywhere. Is, it is glorious. So Fraley, we have seen, tore up double A, got the triple A. Unfortunately, a little bit of a snag with injury, gets back healthy, and now is up with a big league club. I mean, this is the guy who really wasn't necessarily talked about immediately at the top of the fold when that trade happened. And now he's the guy who's becoming a regular for your ball club. And he will. You know, we, we want to see him play regularly the rest of the way. So thrilled for Jake, the year he's had. If you would have been if you would have told me when we made that trade with the Rays, which was really the very first, as I recall, like that kicked yeah, off right. uh, our our roster retool. When we acquired Jake, if you would have told me he's going to go out there at between three levels, OPS near 900 with roughly a 2020 season, play all three outfield positions and and generally sport some of the best hair in the game and do it with energy, awesome makeup. He's a great teammate. Uh, if we would have left him in the Texas League all year, that would have been a pretty aggressive move. He'd never played a day above A-ball when we acquired him. And now he went roughly from from last year being in the Florida State League to this year finishing in the big leagues. And uh, I couldn't be happier for him. Few people work any harder or, or care more than Jake does. And, and eventually he's going to run into his success because he works too hard and he's too skilled not to. I found this to be incredibly emotional about Jake when he got called up and made his debut in St. Petersburg against the Rays. His wife, his two children, two young children were there also with him. Uh, his father made the trip as well. His dad, I almost get choked up just thinking about this, his dad drove him to the ballpark the day where he made his big league debut, which I find to be just about the coolest thing I've ever heard in this game. That is pretty that? awesome. That is pretty awesome. I didn't know that. Uh, I saw his dad there at the ballpark. I didn't know that he drove him to the ballpark. I mean, like, what? That's what, really cool. What's that conversation like? Do you like kind of low key it? Do you like, give him a, a lunch bag yeah, on the way like, out of the hey, car? Hey, you want to? You need to get like a coffee or someone drive through, or like, do you do you talk about it? Do you not? Do you just try to make it act like you're just driving to a little league game? I mean, that was that's pretty special stuff. You have to talk about it. I mean, it's a, we have had the so many different major league debuts this year at the rookies playing for us, many who've never played in the big leagues before. Uh, and we've seen so many cool moments as a result. Right? I mean, finding that I didn't know that about the, the debut of Jake Fraley, watching Tim Lopes interact with his family out here on the field when he made his debut. Shed Long at Fenway Park. Exactly. Yeah. You know, Shed. It's a, there's been so many of them. I think we've had now close to 20 rookies, you know, 20 debut players join our roster this year, which is phenomenal. It, one, one of the many personnel records we are on the verge of setting. <laughs> 
Hey, another guy who we've seen not make his debut, but he did make his first big league start the other night. Justice Sheffield was one of the headline deals, of course, James Paxton going to New York. Sheffield, uh, a part of a package to come back to Seattle. A lot of turbulence for him at Tacoma. Goes down more than straightens things out with AA Arkansas. Comes up, makes his first big league start the other night against Toronto here at home. Uh, This season as a whole, for the frustrations that there must be with Justice early that he must have had with himself, struggling like he and never had in this game before. I mean, he's got a chance to end this season on a really high note at the level where obviously everybody thinks he should be. I think a really high note. And what we saw in his first major league start against Toronto a couple of days back is what we've seen throughout with Justice, physical stuff and resiliency. You know, he really got knocked down when with the start of the season in the PCL, like so many starting pitchers have in the Pacific Coast League this year. And Justice had a tough time with the, first of all, with the strike zone control, which I think was a byproduct of just trying to avoid contact. And, and he, he got into a bad rut. He didn't repeat his pitches and, and do the things that Justice is capable of doing. And we sent him back to Arkansas, 23 years old. Uh, he's still one of the youngest pitchers in the, in the group. And we sent him back and, and he took it from the moment we sent him back as a positive. He joined that, a really good team down there. I thought the, the bond that was cr- quickly evident between he and Justin Dunn was terrific. And he put together not just a, a, a bounce back, he dominated in the Texas League. And, and to be fair to Justice, if not for the fact that he had already experienced AAA uh, and made a major league debut the previous September, as a young 23-year-old in a double-A rotation, throwing up a sub-2 ERA with dominant supporting numbers, you'd be blown away. You'd be very excited about where he was in his development. But because of the the wonky nature of how he got there, it was viewed you know, in the public sphere as a disappointment. We were really happy to see him struggle and recover. And, and I think he was able to effectively to show us that in a microcosm during his start with the Blue Jays. You know, a little bit of bad, 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 luck, bad luck. Everything was was fine in its hole or its open space. But we saw physical stuff. He didn't break down. Uh, he gave us the opportunity to stay in that game, uh, a game that we ultimately came back in. But at the at the end of the day, seeing young players bounce back when they get they get hit in the face for the first time, and this is the first time it's happened to Justice, and and I think that's going to pay dividends many times over as he goes through his major league. Uh, induction or I guess indoctrination because it is going to be one of those circumstances where it's never as smooth as you want it to be he's going to hit bumps in the road and now we know that he's emotionally capable of of handling those bumps because my guess is it's never going to be more turbulent for him than it was with the first two months of this year in Tacoma with new faces in mind we are nearing a flip of the calendar over to September's when rosters expand Jerry we know you can't Uh, Tip your hand too much, and some of those decisions probably haven't been fully made. But when you are thinking about young guys to call up who have a chance to make their debut and be with the ball club for the final month, what are some of the things that you and the baseball ops department look at, consider that go into making that decision? Uh, There are a lot of things that go into that decision. One is where the player is in his development. Uh, I guess the most obvious, and you can do the deductive reasoning or math on this one, One is understanding who needs to be protected from the Rule 5 draft in the coming offseason. You know, every year you have to make decisions on who to put on your 40-man roster in order to preserve them as a a 
I guess, an asset moving forward rather than exposing them to the Rule 5 draft. And, you know, that typically happens in about November. But this year, because of where we are in our in our growth, we, we are a growing team. We are, you know, laden with young players and want to give opportunity to those young players. Those players who do need to be protected in this year's Rule 5 draft, so the, the December 2019 Rule 5 draft, will very likely be here in Seattle. Uh, once their minor league seasons end, whenever that comes, you know, we're also looking at a lot of the guys that have been here throughout the course of the season. And, you know, we're dealing with a number of injured guys and Dan Altavilla, uh, just a couple that come to mind, <laughs> Austin Adams, it's Braden Bishop. It, it is, uh, it's Brent, it, it's Brandon Brennan. It, we have, we have a number of guys, Mitch Hanniger, a number of guys that we're hoping uh, come September 1st, are healthy enough to rejoin us. And then looking at those guys that we were so excited to see early and and really didn't get the opportunity, uh, Shed Long comes to mind. So we will have a, a, a pretty I guess, ample roster uh, expansion come September, but we're, we are very excited for seeing Jake Fraley, ultimately seeing guys like Kyle Lewis and Justin Dunn and Justice Sheffield and, and JP Crawford play together and become what we think is the first wave that sends us into 2020 when our, when our growth really starts to take off. So standing room only in the clubhouse is what you're saying. The exa- the auxiliary lockers will be wheeled in. It will be built out. You know, it's funny. My my first year in the big leagues, we played in old Cleveland Municipal Stadium, uh, which was I it was gigantic. But for for all of the the majesty of this giant old dank stadium that sat eighty thousand people, the clubhouse was about as big as this table, and we we had uh, in September that year. We had our September call-ups dress in the auxiliary locker room, which was one wooden staircase, rickety staircase up from our main clubhouse. And it was where Slider, our team mascot, dressed. So as a reward for going to the big leagues for the first time, you you got to go up, upstairs in the attic and dress with the <laughs> mascot. <laughs> it was a... We do a little bit better than that. We can house them. We think we'll probably be at 35 or 36 players for the month of September. Good to know. Let's talk about some of the guys down on the farm that have, my goodness, I mean, not only have they had great years, they have more than exceeded probably the production level that so many expected for them this year. Uh, Mariners.com slash blog, where you can find week-to-week information, updated information on so many of the top performers in the Mariners minor league farm system. I'm going to let you kind of go chef's choice on this because uh, there's a lot of directions you can go here. I mean, Logan Gilbert, Jared Kelnick, and of course, Julio Rodriguez and his recent promotion. I mean, all three of those guys have been at multiple levels. Two of them have been at three levels and they have all been massively impressive. Like so many in our system. Uh, This is, it's funny you know, we had in 2016, our, our minor league clubs all advanced to the postseason. We had a great win-loss, uh, one-loss record through the course of the 2016 season without really having dynamic prospects at, at any level. Flash forward in 2019, have generally middling records outside of Arkansas, but our prospect development has been remarkable. And especially in the guys we, I guess, that are most famous in, in prospect circles. And you named a few of them. Uh, to look at where Julio began, I'll just start with the, the youngest of the group. Julio is 18 years old. And I won't even say the youngest because I'm going to pull out another of the chef's choices. And I'm, oh, I, you're right. I left a 17-year-old off the list. Correct. 
Uh, but Julio is just 18 years old. We made a very aggressive roster placement with him coming out of spring training and sending him off to West Virginia. We sending an 18 year old to full season baseball for the first time, skipping over both the, the Arizona summer league and, uh, the Northwest league is an aggressive move by itself, but he just, he was so good and so emotionally mature and how he handled that Sally league that we decided here at the end would promote him to Modesto and get his feet wet at that level. And he's done nothing but dominate since he's been there. Like he's hitting 600 coming into the day today with a, 1500 or so OPS. Uh, I think the second youngest player in, in full season baseball this year. And, uh, and only the, well, I should say this only the only one of two 18 year olds playing in, in full season, a baseball this year, uh, has had an awesome year and has superstar potential. Uh, Julio's a great kid. He has an awesome personality. He really just, did, he's like a bug light. He attracts you. And, uh, it's, he's an, a great teammate on top of it who's uh, we're thrilled for his success and if you would have told me that this is the way his year was going to go I, sign me up uh, pinch me really he's, he's been fantastic Kelnick you know Jared has had as good a year as you can have he's a again another 2020 guy uh has has OPS roughly 900 as a 19 year old touching three levels and finishing in, in the Texas league postseason, which is where it's going to lead. Uh, we are going to send Julio and Jared to, to play in the Arizona fall league, which is also an aggressive placement, but their talent levels, their emotional maturity, the way they handle it. And the fact that they can do it together because they're particularly close is a fun thing for us. And, and we can take two of our, really our, our most, notable young players and allow them to grow together. That's fun. Uh, Logan Gilbert has been on a crazy run I, at, uh, in double a, he too has traveled through three levels this year, playing his first summer of professional baseball, sit rolling in with a sub two ERA. He's going to finish this season in double a and, uh, with, with something in the neighborhood at 10 plus strikeouts per nine, he's not walking them. He shows quality stuff night after night. And I think were our circumstances to be a little bit different and his innings were in a different position, we would be talking about Logan Gilbert as a, as a potential September call-up in the big leagues is how good his year's been. I can say the same about Kyle Lewis, who goes, flies beneath the radar because his, his numbers don't jump off the page. But as a right-handed hitter playing his home games at Dickey Stevens Park in Little Rock to do what he's doing, and especially if you look at what he does on the road, it's absurd how good he's been. And the decisions that he makes, uh, you know, Kyle Lewis swings at good – he does strike out, but he swings at good pitches, he makes good decisions, and he hits the ball hard. And that's how generally we are – we're looking at those three things to determine a prospect's finish. Evan White, great year, I think, in consideration for Texas League MVP. And, you know, he's going to be among the top three or four candidates with Donnie Walton. You know, our, our shortstop for, for the Travelers also going to be one of those guys. And the player we didn't mention was Noel V. Marte, who just had an absurd finish to his 17-year-old season down in the DSL. That's very reminiscent of what Julio did in that same league last year at the same age. And Noel V plays shortstop, we think has the ability to stay there for a bit, but more likely grows into a third baseman as he matures. He's, he's big, he's physical, he has huge power, and he's got a, a really advanced hit tool. So you take hit and power 
present day shortstop who can really throw and envision one day him moving over to third base. And, and that has us really excited about what the future holds for Nualde. Your first round draft pick this year, George Kirby, when he walks his first batter as a professional, I mean, like, do you, do you like call him and make a scary phone call? Console him? Yeah. In I mean, I mean, what, what do you, what do we do here? You know, I, I've seen George pitch a couple of times. The Everett pitching in general, you know, we've now moved one ten on up to West Virginia, but George Kirby, Brandon Williamson has been terrific. Uh, they have real stuff in George's case. There's, we may go into the off season or, or into May of, of 2020 without George Kirby having walked a batter. Uh, it's, he is, he has not walked a hitter since May when he was uh, pitching at Elon. I, now his strikeout to walk ratio is, is approaching the absurd. It's, uh, it's something like 140 to six <laughs> and, I, and I, I'm ballparking there, but I think that's about right. And, uh, George has a really built out arsenal. He touches 99 miles an hour. He throws strikes seemingly at will. He just refuses to walk them and he'll run a three ball count. He just keeps on coming back and, and, you know, he'll just, he'll cover the fastball and, and he forces you to hit velocity if you, if you want to get on base instead of walking. So, uh, couldn't be happier about his development. And like I said, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Brandon Williamson, who, I mean, Brandon in his own right, 93 to 96 with a real curveball. He's got bat missing ability, good athlete on the mound. We're really excited about where he is as well. A lot of good stuff. I'm, I'm, I need to find out how many. I can perk up when we're talking about our young players right <laughs> I now. I do need to find out how many three ball counts Kirby has by season's end. Yeah, it, it's I mean, few. I've, I've been there and I've seen two. Uh, and I've seen what? a three zero count. Two, yeah, Jerry, right. that's panic time, man. You, you may you may turn your nose down at the three and zero, but it was remarkable. I think that the last time I saw him go three and zero, he just came back and just started pummeling the strike zone, and it wound up being an eight or nine pitch at bat. And on the ninth pitch, he threw a breaking ball and, and got a pass. That's, that's he has that he has. There's something about his delivery is easy. There's something about his resolve to throwing strikes that. You know, he just makes you hit it. He'll throw it over the plate. And you now I, I think that's something that Marco Gonzalez has learned is the value of, of throwing the ball over the plate. And, and he did it at a very young age. And when you can combine that type of mentality with the type of stuff George has, that, that really sends you over the top. And he's not a crafty. I mean, maybe he's crafty in the sense that he obviously doesn't walk anybody. He can work through an AB. But when you think of him, this isn't, a crafty low 90s righty who's kind of working his way through it and you wonder how he'll perform with the high minors i mean i pop open the highlights and you're seeing 97s 96s if not higher i mean he is really something he's got the stuff oh it's real stuff and i think you know when we drafted george with 20th pick and uh, i'm overjoyed that, that we get the opportunity to pick a player with that kind of physical ability at the 20th pick and the general consensus is that ah, it's a boring college starter and and my thought is there's nothing boring about George Kirby. And frankly, though we picked him in the second round, there's nothing boring about Brandon Williamson. These guys have real physical weapons that, frankly, are they're probably more built out and have more physical stuff than many of the guys that were going in the top 10 in the draft. So we're, we're thrilled that they're both Mariners. I've got a spectacular Stump JD today because – Does it have to do with – children the the birth of of players kids and names there's and no birthing going on in stump jd <laughs> no okay. okay thank goodness <laughs> but but it'll be fantastic uh because we're talking about pitchers hitting jerry okay see there's something now you're as it. you know i'm i'm well in tune with pitcher hitting. all right so because i have oh jerry can rake i have a hit yeah you have a hit i have a hit. single 
It was a single. It was, it was a rocket. You, oh, it was a rocket. It was a rocket. Nothing Exit Velo was. It just. It didn't even register. Maybe you just used your speed to bake, to leg it out. Okay, so <laughs> Jerry, thirteen times. This is pretty incredible in and of itself. Thirteen times in baseball history has a single player hit two grand slams in one game. Thirteen times. That's it. Thirteen times, two salamis, same game. I mean, it's that's tough to do, right? right? Only once has a pitcher done it. A pitcher who hit two grand slams. You just asked the question yourself. Who wow. is that pitcher? A pitcher to hit two. Can you give me a, a general age, like a ballpark? All right. Era? So I believe this was the last year of the Atlanta Braves. Oh, no, excuse me. Um, Milwaukee Braves? Of, uh, no, it was the first year of the Atlanta Braves. I beg your pardon. Uh, this was in 1966. He threw a complete game and hit two grand slams. Two grand slams, complete game. He would go on to be a pitching coach. Was it Tony Cloninger? Yes, Jerry. <laughs> yes, Jerry. There's. How do you feel? How do you feel about yourself right now? I'm making dreams come I, true I today. Mean, I, I I feel like doing the Ricky Henderson trip. Like the yes, I just hit the are. homer. I'm picking the shirt. I'm pointing at people. I, you are I the greatest say, ever lived. Yes, today I am the greatest. I Tony Cloninger uh, was on that team, and I did not know he hit two grand slams until this moment. How did you filter down to Tony Cloninger? Uh, because I'm thinking through the pitchers on that that <laughs> team, and uh, and and I blurted it out. But that team also had uh, a pitcher by the name of Pat Jarvis, who, if if memory serves, is that his claim to fame is that he was Nolan Ryan's very first strikeout victim. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, and and. I think lastly, that team also had a very young and not yet knuckleball Phil Necro. Oh. Uh, so it's, they had all kinds of things going on. And, and to clean it up, yes, 66 was the first year of the Atlanta Braves uh, for what it's, whatever that's worth. Uh, there was a great postgame quote, by the way, from Tony when he said, for some reason, nobody wants to talk to me about my pitching. <laughs> he threw a CG. He won the game, but he hit two grand slams, which I thought was fantastic. And Jerry, I, I mean, I'm not blowing smoke here. I think this is your best performance yet. Really? Yeah, because oh. you went into this dark, I think. I mean, I don't think you had much of an idea. I had no idea. Yeah. Unless you're just fooling us here. Uh, and then you filtered it down within the matter of like 30 seconds. This is the... <laughs> Congratulations! I mean, that's a great that's a great win. Yeah. I was, it was, I, was I will destroy you I was next process. time. Please, I, I, I know, I know. <laughs> I have to make it much more obscure. I thought this was very obscure. Uh, let's get on to some listener questions. As always, the wheelhouse at mariners.com. Jacob chimes in on Twitter. Jerry, uh, he'd love to know uh, what you look for when making hires, particularly hires within the baseball ops staff. What attributes are most sought after? and the current data-driven decision-making model, and what does the future look like beyond advanced analytics? What's next? Uh, I guess first and what we're looking for, we look for uniqueness. Uh, there's Bill James, uh, who really, since we're talking about birthrights today, 
He birthed the, well, you the, mean, well, the title the, of this podcast have something to do with this. I was column. thinking about just naming it Leo Daniel Kukuchi, but we'll see. No, see, wheel, <laughs> wheels are already turning over here. There we go. Uh, you know, Bill James often cited as the father of modern baseball sabermetrics, and and the the way front offices operate today is very much driven off of Bill and and his theories that were established in the seventies and kind of refined in the eighties, and then became mainstream in the nineties and two thousands. Uh, you know, Bill's general thought on player evaluation was that the the more unique the player is, the more value that player has. And that's the way we're we view front office personnel is find people with unique skill sets. We're 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 and sometimes what you do is you're pushing it to the edge. You're taking chances on people who may not naturally fit in the in the baseball context. Because that's the only way you're ever going to be able to push the boundaries. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't is the reality of the situation. Sometimes people acclimate and sometimes they don't. But, you know, in our analytics department, we have, I mean, they, they come from all over. They're Stanford, they're Yale, they're Harvard, they're, I mean, it's it's the, the sharpest of the sharp. And, and I think our, our group does a great job around our player development and scouting departments we have a lot of guys that that have come from all over the map and and really bring so many different skills and and it could be someone who's never really played baseball uh but understands player analysis and how the numbers work or it could be a, a young lady like emily curtis who has done an unbelievable job in our analytics department of taking whatever form of information we give her whether it's related to a baseball player or it's medical data that, that runs on in, in I don't want to jump into a swimming pool full of, of, you know, bio data. She carves through it and she gives us great information to make, you know, I guess, good decisions with. Quick Either producer in, plug. You can hear from Emily Curtis at Celebrating Women in Baseball Day on uh, September 12th. Tickets at Mariners.com slash women. And then I'll let you continue. Well done, Maestro. Well a, done. A seamless interruption, if I do say so uh, myself. Yeah. A, <laughs> so, anyway. So I think uh, the the answer to the question is the more unique the background, the more unique your skill set, the more interested we become. And oftentimes I'll get resumes and resumes that look terrific. They come literally by the thousands on, on an annual basis. And I'm just looking for, you know, that, that thin slice, this is interesting. And that's usually what I do is I'll pass on 900 of them to, to the group to cut through and find those 100. This looks interesting enough for me to mention it. And then I'll pass it along to our leadership group, which kind of ensures that they're going to get a second look. This next question comes from Nate also through Twitter. Now, he notes your culinary uh, mindset. He wants to know, what's the favorite dish that Mrs. DePoto cooks for you? Mrs. DePoto, this is going to sound very happy days. Mrs. DePoto makes a killer meatloaf with the it, with this nothing wrong with that. Yeah, it was sausage and it's a it is my favorite thing she makes is meatloaf with a corn casserole and uh, it's so we have a multi meat blend in the loaf. Uh, there is a multi meat blend. Oh, all right, that's count big them time right there. Not one, not two, but three meats. Really? <laughs> yeah, three all meats. Woof. There's a title challenger right there, a multi meat blend. I think there's. I just think yeah, <laughs> or three meats. You heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> We call it gotta, three meats. Try meat. This is going to be the hardest part of your day, trying to trying to filter this out. Speaking of bio data to go through, uh, all right. So, and what's the, what's the corn casserole? 
Uh, the corn casserole, corn or sour cream. She's got a little bit of a panko uh, breadcrumb. The texture. It, it's a. Uh, it, it's. I, I love it. it it's a. Uh, it's my favorite thing that she makes. It's got some cheese in there. Uh, although I'm, I'm not proud to say that I'll, I'll, I'll throw down some cheese as she's cutting through. Hey, the you're corn talking casserole. to Mr. Cheese. What are you talking about, man? Yeah. Sour this, cream cheese. I'm there. Yeah. I just don't. Is... I don't want Murph to get mad at me. Oh, <laughs> Murph. This is not keto approved. Whatever that even means. Yeah, but but the meatloaf, the corn casserole, it's I don't that that is when I don't even I'm not even trying to be the sous chef. I stay out of the kitchen and let her do her thing. So meatloaf and carving turkeys, this is where Back you off. just walk away. Yeah. <laughs> I become the dishwasher. Well, this has been a great podcast as always. Uh, the Mariners at the time of this recording on Monday before the three game series against the Yankees. Mariners are home for three more. We've got day baseball Wednesday, one ten, a Mariners midweek matinee. Let's see, if there was only something compelling about that pitching matchup on Wednesday, Jerry. Uh, Paxton versus Sheffield. Accidental, but... Accidental. I mean, this is going to be a lot of fun for a lot of reasons to watch that game. I, I'm really looking forward to it. I said to Justin Hollander, our assistant GM, this morning, I, you know, we had set up, if you go back and look, when we had Felix out on his rehab... And he was making his starts. You know, he was timed up to pitch the final game of the Yankee series. And as it works out, in the middle of his rehab, one of the games was a morning game in Everett, which we didn't think was going to be a very productive way to get Felix's innings in. So we decided to push Felix back by a day, pitch the following evening rather than on a on a weekday after uh, it's like a little kid's day 10 a.m yeah right uh so we we pushed felix back and in so doing we had to revert justice so when you saw justice here against toronto he was actually on six full days of rest and and when setting that up it ensured that justice would pitch the final game of the yankee series rather than the first game of the rangers series and when when that took place, I had no idea that his opponent would be James Paxton. And that bumped Yusei Kikuchi back. So now instead of inserting Yusei against the Rangers, we wound up inserting him against the Yankees because we had pushed Felix back. So that one decision in not starting Felix in the morning in Everett created what really looks like a fun, intriguing three-game set with the Yankees, more than just playing one of the best teams in the league. Seeing Kikuchi against Tanaka, seeing Sheffield against Paxton, it's a uh, it's if nothing else, we're going to find out how how tough we are because those are pretty fun matchups, and everybody's going to be watching. Absolutely, really juicy pitching matchups. The Mariners are back home Tuesday, September tenth. The rare interleague matchup against the Reds, who are celebrating their hundred fiftieth anniversary, which is amazing. And also, we'll have a Ichiro celebration night, of course, coming up mid September against the White Sox. We hope to see you here at beautiful T-Mobile Park, Jerry. We've given Colin a lot to filter through and think about on this one. Uh, We appreciate your time, as always. Thank you so much. That's a joy. 